start by uh, introducing to you a good friend of mine, uh, Matt Deaver and his family, Trista, and his, his children are here today. And afterwards, we want to invite you guys stick around for lunch, and Matt's going to talk about kind of what, where, where God is leading them, and, and uh, they're heading out to the mission field. I'm going to let him, I'm not going to steal his thunder, let him share about that, but I want at least to get him up here and, and ask him a few questions so you could get to know him a little bit. I know some of you know him well, uh, some of you have maybe have never met him, so I just want, Matt, maybe you can tell us a little bit kind of about your background, Creekside, or, or what was then Cornerstone, and how, you, how you're connected to us. It's a great, great privilege to be here this morning. Um, yeah, so my, my interaction, my, I guess, history with Cornerstone, you know, now Creekside goes back about 15 years. Uh, I went, I, I joined a short-term mission trip to Mexico, to go to Mexico in 2000, uh, the year 2000 with the youth group. And, you know, Kyle was on that trip, uh, Michael Gentosi, some others here this morning. And on that trip is where, where I came to faith in Christ. And so it was through Cornerstone uh, that I, I came to know Jesus. And, and it was in Cornerstone that I was baptized and discipled. Uh, in fact, when, it, when, it, when we're going around and sharing our, our story and our vision for uh, missions and what God is leading us to do, it always includes Kyle and uh, you know, I tell him, he early on gave me, gave me I remember, uh, he gave me a missionary biography called Brushko, and I read that book, uh, you know, within the first year of being a Christian, and just reading that, talking with him, uh, God used that to grab my heart, and I just felt like, that's what I want to do with my life. I, I want to bring the gospel to those who have never heard. And so, um, I literally would not be here this morning without Cornerstone and the ministry, um, of Cornerstone, and so I just I praise God, and it's it's a great joy to yeah just be reminded of how He's redeemed me and uh, given me life through Christ. That's changed my entire life. Um, so awesome. yeah, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. I I I could probably share a lot of stories about you know what what God did back in, in the youth group and how God used Matt and his life and his passion and excitement for the gospel, for people coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And man, I, our group grew from about, probably about 15 people hanging out and raining in Sherry Nesbitt's basement just praying to a group that we had to leave, went to Crown Point, had 100 high school students and saw people surrendering their lives to Christ because Matt and a few others got excited about the gospel, right? Got excited about what we're here to do and share the message of Jesus Christ. So this is exciting to see Matt kind of go down that path. Why don't you tell us a little bit, you know, about what you've been doing recently? Yeah, yeah so the last uh, three years, my wife and I and our two kids, we moved, we moved down to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, or Louisville, depending on where you're at. <laughs> There's about eight different ways to say it. Um, but we moved down there. We, we felt a burden. You know, we've wanted to get to the mission field uh, for about 10 years now, but the Lord has kept us here. And in the meantime, he just gave me a deep desire to, to study the word of God uh, deeper. And so we, we went to seminary, to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary down there, spent three years there. And it was just, uh, seminary was great, but really the highlight was we moved, we moved into an apartment complex there that had 26 uh, Nepali families, refugees. And so, you know, we were able to be neighbors with Nepali families, to have them in our home, uh, to share the gospel with them and to reach out. And so 
yeah, that was just a very rich season in our life of, of getting to be on mission uh, right here in America and also uh, to further prepare and equip for heading over to the mission field. That's awesome. I, I, you know, Matt, Matt talked about this, but from, I don't know, what, 18 years old, he, he had a heart to go to the mission field and, you know, probably had no idea where at that point, but to see now, how old are you now? 31, yeah. Jeez, I'm, that means I'm getting old. But <laughs> to see, you know, that, that dream and that desire fulfilled is exciting. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about Next Step, where you're going. Yeah, what so, plan is. Yeah, so we're planning uh, to move to Nepal in uh, at the end of this October. And so uh, I've made a couple of trips over there. Uh, Trista and I went on a trip last year. And the Lord really just confirmed that that is where he wanted us. Um, so we'll be heading there this fall, and our, our vision there is to, you know, make disciples and train leaders in order to plant healthy churches, and really doing that among the unreached people group. So there's, there's still 330-plus uh, communities, people groups that have never even heard the name of Christ, and so we're excited to go there and, yeah, bring the message that's changed our lives, uh, that's changed your lives, and and share that. So we'll, we'll, uh, um, yeah, we'll, we'll share more about that in the presentation, what that looks like. And, but that's, that's the plan now in about four months, we'll, uh, Lord willing, get on a plane and head that way. And we really desire to be there, uh, long-term. So that's, awesome. that's the plan. Let me pray for you. Uh, God, we, uh, we thank you for the Devers, for Matt and Tristan, their family. Uh, God, we just, uh, we're excited for them. Uh, God, we're, we're excited for what you have done in their life already, how you've used them, uh, God, for your kingdom, uh, to bring people to a saving knowledge of, of your son, Jesus. And God, we pray for this next step uh, as you lead them to Nepal. God, we pray that, uh, God, you would use them mightily for your kingdom. Uh, we pray that, God, that we would see many come to know your son, Jesus, because of this ministry. Uh, God, uh, light a fire in the people in Nepal. Help them to realize uh, that they are lost, that they are in, in need of a Savior. Uh, and God, just protect Matt and Trista as well. We pray and we want to commission them uh, to the field, to the work, and uh, just pray for your, for, your, uh, just for your safety for them. And God, that you would uh, bless them mightily. Uh, we pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, we, would, we would strongly encourage you to please stick around afterwards. I think it's going to be a great time to hear what God is doing and, and kind of their plans uh, in Nepal as well. So let's, uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I, I, Nick kind of uh, talked about this, alluded to this a little bit, but if you've been on social media or you've been watching TV or you haven't had your head in the sand, when, if you're like me, when you turn on your computer, it, it probably looked like this. Did it not? Now, it so happens that this morning, as it falls, we need to talk about the promise of the rainbow. The promise of God's salvation seen in the rainbow. As we've worked through the book of Genesis, we come to Genesis chapter 9, and Nick took us through the story of Noah... And today, they step off the ark, right? And for the first time, post-flood, we see a new life. 
And so what we want to talk about this morning is this promise seen in God's salvation, in this symbol, in his covenant of the rainbow. And this is the true meaning of what it stands for. So we want to explore that today. I would echo what Nick said. We as a church and we as elders you know, believe that God has designed from the beginning his marriage covenant is between man and woman. And it goes back all the way to the beginning of Genesis. We see it lived out here, again, post-flood in Genesis 9 as well. But we would also echo when Nick says that, above all, love wins, doesn't it? Above all, we want people to recognize true love. We want people to know love wins because the lamb was slain. We want people to know, and we, as his church, are his mouthpiece. We are his hands. We are his feet to take this love to a lost and a dying and a hurting world. And no matter what what the government says or the world around us does, we as a church, we're called to love people. We're called to love people unconditionally, people who don't share the same view as us, who, who don't believe the same things as us. We're called to love them. I, I go to Romans chapter 5, and in Romans chapter 5, it tells us that while we were yet sinners, why we were yet enemies of God, Jesus died for us. When we opposed God, when we were against God, he showed so much love to us, he sent his son to the cross to die for us. Is that not love? We as his followers are called to do the same thing. No matter what someone believes or if they believe the same thing or, as I do or not, love wins because Jesus went to the cross. We, and if you look across the world where, where the church is exploding and growing today is where the church is countercultural. See, I think part of the problem with our, the church in America today, and if you go back and you look 50, 75, 100 years back, you'd see churches, large denominations, huge churches that they don't exist anymore, or they're dwindling. And the reason is because they wanted to be too much like culture. When we are called to be counterculture, we're called to be different, we're called to be separate, set apart, holy, different than the world around us. And when the world recognizes that, now it doesn't mean that you know, we're throwing our beliefs or we're, we're, we're shoving it in people's face, but we are loving. Right? You know, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control against such things, there is no law. We are called to love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, I have not love, I am a resounding gong and clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but not have love, I gain nothing. We want to, above all, love. Love wins because the lamb was slain. Love wins because Jesus went to the cross and in a hurting and in a broken world, and it is going to remain hurting and broken. It doesn't matter who is elected as officials or what the government does. We live in a broken and a hurting world and a world that needs to know and encounter the great love of Jesus Christ, the finished work found on the cross. Love wins because Jesus went to the cross for us. Genesis chapter 9. Well, what, what in the world does this have to do with Genesis? 
I don't know, I just wanted to ramble on for a little bit, who knows, but it has a lot to do with it. Because in Genesis chapter 9, we see what this true message of this rainbow really stands for. The true message of the gospel is found in Genesis chapter 9. One thing you will always find is anytime we see that God has a covenant, that it is a symbol, it is a sign of salvation. It is a symbol of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And the rainbow is no different. Nick called me or texted me this morning. He was driving in and he told me, you know, Kyle, I'm driving in there in the distance, right? He sees the rainbow. Doesn't it, it, it never ceases to amaze me to see a rainbow. Anybody else like that? I mean, anytime you see one, it's, it's, always, it's always breathtaking. And I think God has designed it that way because it is a symbol of his son. It is a symbol of the message of the gospel. And it always will take my breath away. I'm always, hey kids, you gotta check that out, right? Anybody do that to their kids? Because there's beauty in it. So Genesis chapter 9, here's what it says. First 17 verses, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in the number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground, upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And from each man, too, I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply in the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut out of the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between men and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind of the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Noah here in the book of Genesis. God, we pray that as we look and we see this covenant that you made with Noah and his descendants and us, God, that we would see Jesus, that we would see the message of the gospel, we would see the truth of the gospel. God, that we would long for that relationship with Jesus. Uh, God, point us there this morning. God, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you have to tell us. We pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. I don't know if you, you guys remember hearing this story as a kid, don't you? The story of Noah. If, you, if you're like me, I remember the story of Noah and you go to Sunday school class and you get that 
cool little pa- painting that you can, you know, you draw or color. And then there's the, the animals. They look so happy, and they're on this cute little boat. And then there's that beautiful rainbow. You guys remember that, right? I mean, that's a story I remember as a kid. This, this you know, you know oh, what, a, what a cute story. Rainbows and animals. It was so cute. Then I read it again as I got a little older. And the story is really not all that cute. In fact, God was so displeased and God found no redeeming value in mankind. They wiped it out. That's not that cute little Sunday school story, is it? No redeeming value in man. No redeeming value in his creation. And he simply wipes it out. And you look at it and you can't help, but if you understand what took place in the story, you can't help but fear God. I mean, this is a God of wrath and judgment. And my response to a God with that kind of power, I should be in awe. I should be fearful because of who this God is. And I I think even so, if you look in these first few verses, and what do you see? Noah, his response, he gets off the ark, and what's his first thing he does? He builds an altar to God, because I think he recognizes exactly that. This This is a God of wrath. This is a God to be feared. A God who was willing and able to wipe out all of his creation. Noah's response, I think, is one of awe and one of fear, a holy trembling and fear before an almighty God. And he builds this altar. So so what is this story of Noah about? Is it just a story of this great and powerful and wrathful God that wants to destroy? I know it's not a story of rainbows and kittens and all that. It's much more. In 1996, uh, Bill Moyer, they did a special on PBS, and there were 10 episodes on this special on PBS. And each one of them were 10 different stories from the book of Genesis. And what he did is on these 10 different stories, he would bring a panel of experts in. And so while I I didn't find the the videos of it, I did find a short little six-minute video I watched on the story of Noah, but then the entire transcript was in there. And so here are these professionals These people who have studied this story specifically. They were experts in the field of just talking about Noah. And so he brought them in and they had this discussion. And there was one pastor on the panel. And I think what stuck out, what his words kind of stuck out to me. And in it, uh, he made the statement about it. He says, really, the story of Noah is a story about second chances. It's about God being committed to creation and giving it a second chance. It is a story of new beginnings. And I love that because I I think that's true. I think the story of Noah is exactly that. And the story and a theme throughout Scripture is that, a story of new beginnings, a story of new creation. This is exactly what Jesus has done for us, that what we find, the new life we find in Jesus We become a new creation. We have a new beginning. It's the story and the message of the gospel seen here in the book of Genesis and the story of Noah, a story of new beginnings. And so there's a couple things I want to point out as we read through uh, here in Genesis chapter 9, two main points. The first one, we see a new creation 
as I just talked about. And the second is we see a new covenant, a new creation and a new covenant. So new creation, well, what do I mean by a new creation? Well, one thing, this is Mark's backyard, okay? So Mark Klein sent this picture this week, and uh, he says, be glad, that's only one night. Could you imagine Noah, 40, 40 days and 40 nights right there? So one of the things we see in this new creation is we see a promise from God, right? The rainbow represents a promise that he's never going to destroy this earth again by flood, only Mark's backyard, right? Okay, so... That wasn't off limits. It's receded now, though, right? All right. But we saw it this week. We saw the waters. We saw it rise. You know, I, I saw a couple pictures. I remember Zach Oler posted something. I saw that from Mark. But the waters rose this week. But we knew the promise of God, that in the promise of God, this earth would never again be destroyed by flood. So a new creation. Here's a couple things we see regarding the new creation. If you go back and you read in the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, and you compare it to what we see now in Genesis chapter 9. Let me read this verse, verse 1 again. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Now, you've heard that somewhere before, haven't you? If you know the story of creation, you've heard it before. If you were here as we went through Genesis chapter 1, you heard it before. In fact, look at some of these things we see in new creation. First, Genesis chapter 1, God sent a wind. Genesis 1-2, he sends a wind. Genesis 8-1, in the story of Noah, we see it again. Second thing, water separates from land. We see it in creation. Genesis 1-9, see it again. Genesis 8-5. We see birds sent out to fly. We see it in Genesis 1-20. And then we see Noah do it, Genesis 8-6. Living creatures of every kind, Genesis 1-25. And then again in Genesis 8, 17. Be fruitful and multiply as God sets up the covenant of marriage back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, 28. And he repeats it three more times for Noah and his sons. How it is to be carried out, Genesis 8, 17, 9, 1, and then again in Genesis 9, 7. Dominion given over animals, we see it in Genesis 126, 128, and we see it again here in verse 2 of chapter 9. And then we see good, good prescribed to eat. That's supposed to say food. Good prescribed to eat. I don't know what that means. Genesis 1, that's supposed to say food prescribed to eat. Genesis 1, 29 and 30, and then again in Genesis 9, 3. And then there is food that is prohibited as well, Genesis 2, 17, Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Is there... A similar thing going on here. Look at the story of creation, and then look again what happens here in Genesis chapter 8 and 9. The new creation, a new beginning. God is doing away with the old and creating something new. It's really kind of a reboot. It's a restart to what God had done originally. Here he is, starting all over. And we see some of the reasons why as we move forward. So looking at this idea of new creation, within this new creation, there's a couple things we want to see, a couple new things that happen with us. First of all, relationship with nature. We see a new relationship with nature. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on before the flood, all of it, but you see some things in these verses. In fact, you see uh, in verse uh, was it, three, I think it's... Well, well, we'll find it. But in, within here, within the scripture, it talks about the fact that now animals are going to fear mankind. All right, well, 
most likely then, before the flood, that probably didn't exist. I don't know why it'd be mentioned if it wasn't. So here, he's going to set that animals now have a fear of mankind. Something in nature has changed. However, there is a relationship that God's people are to have with nature. And it's brought out here in Genesis under this new covenant. Look at a couple of verses here. Genesis chapter 9, 12. It says this, And God said, This is a sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you and what? Every living creature with you. Genesis, uh, in verse 15, it says, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Verse 16 Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures and every kind on the earth. And verse 17, and God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all the earth. God's covenant is not only with us, not only with man, but with his creation, So much so, and he thinks so highly and so great of his creation, and rightfully so, he created it, that his covenant is not only with us, but it's with his creation as well. And any time God calls somebody into a covenant throughout Scripture, if you read and God is calling someone into a covenant, he's calling it into a saving relationship, a person, right? If he's doing a covenant, he's calling it into a saving relationship. It's no different here in Genesis chapter 9 as he calls us, into a covenant, as he calls Noah and his descendants, and creation as well. He's calling it into a saving relationship. And as we look at creation, there's a reason for that. We know that God created it. We know in it is its its beauty. We talked about the rainbow already. All of us look and we recognize the beauty we see in it because God has created it. Romans 8, 19 through 22 says this, For the creation waits eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Nature awaits. Nature doesn't function properly. Nature itself is waiting to be redeemed. And I think through Scripture we see that God himself is committed to saving and renewing uh, nature itself. Look at John 3.16. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world, and the word there for world is cosmos, world. He's come to redeem and buy back not only us, but he's come to redeem the world and his creation as well. If you look at the story and the message of the gospel, the story and the message of the gospel is not God saving us and getting us out of this place, is it? The story is not him taking us out of this world. The story and the message of the gospel is Jesus coming here to resurrect, to make new That is the message of the gospel, and it's seen in his creation as well. Let me read Psalm 19, 1 through 4. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. 
There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Creation speaks of God. Creation itself, when we look and we see creation, we see a creator. And it displays this great and powerful God. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, The Weight of Glory, he said this, speaking of creation, when human souls have become as perfect in voluntary obedience as creation in its lifeless obedience, then they will put on its glory, or rather that greater glory of which nature is only the first sketch. The reality and what we see in Romans chapter 8 is nature is waiting for us to catch up. I shared this quote one time, but Elizabeth Elliot made the quote uh, about clams. She said, a clam glorifies God more than us because a clam is being what it was intended to be. Nature is waiting for us to catch up. Nature speaks to the glory of God. And it's waiting for us. It's waiting for us. New creation, a new relationship uh, Psalm 96, 11 through 13 says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound, and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. Uh, you think nature is beautiful now. You think it's beautiful to look at a rainbow. You think it's beautiful to look and marvel in his creation. Just wait until he comes back and he heals. Wait until he comes back and he resurrects. In this new creation, there is a relationship. Now, I, I'm definitely not a tree hugger by any sense of the imagination, but God has called us to love his creation as much as he does. Because creation, creation speaks to him. Creation speaks of him, speaks of his glory, speaks of his presence. They sing, listen to those verses in the Psalms. They sing of his presence. Isn't that amazing? A new creation. The next thing we see in here is that there's not only a relationship with nature, his creation, but there's also a new relationship with people. Let me read verses four through eight. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number and multiply on the earth and increase upon it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you. Be fruitful and multiply. A new relationship with people has now been established. Here, here's the essence. If you look at 4, 5, 6, and 7, the essence and what we see is we see the heart of God. We see the heart of God is that he loves man. And he has placed man even above that of you know, his creation and, and the animals and all of that. But he has a heart and a love and, an, and a love for mankind. 
And what we want to see in this section, in this portion, above anything else, and there's a lot to be pulled from it, is the attitude and God's heart towards human life. He has a high regard for human life. As we saw with his creation, he has a high regard for his creation. He has a high regard for human life. So much so that he says anyone who lays a hand on any human being, he's going to take it as an assault upon himself. Well, what, why? What does that mean? Well, it, we are made in his image. We were created in his image. And so taking an assault on any mankind is really taking an assault on him because he is created in his own image. He has created man like himself. And I think a lesson for us here is that for us to have the heart of God in dealing with any people, and we talked about love winning out in the beginning, but to have the heart of God is not to look upon mankind and not to look upon the merits of mankind, but to look on the fact that they have been made in the image of God. And to have the heart of God is to look upon fellow man as if as God looks upon them. That why were they were yet enemies, why they were separated from God, why they were against God, God loved them so much, he sent his son to die. I mean, that's pretty incredible love. To lay your life down, not for your family, not for your brother, not for your friend, but for your enemies. This is the view we are to have of fellow man. And it doesn't matter what, what, what their political view is, what, what their spiritual view is, but our heart for mankind is to be the heart of Jesus who willingly laid his life down for people who hated him, for his enemies, for people who definitely were not on the same page, definitely did not agree with him. This is the heart of God. This is to be our heart. And the essence of this portion tells us what God feels about human life. So within this section, most, most of our forefathers and mo, uh, many church leaders believe, really get the first sense of government here, that before the flood, there was a sense that basically, if you wanted to do something, you did it, right? I mean, you were your own law. You set your own rules. You did your own thing. And as we study Scripture and we look at Scripture, we understand the heart of, of man is evil, right? There is no one good, not one. That apart from the redeeming relationship found in Jesus Christ, no one is good. Not, not a single one of us. We're wicked. And so man was kind of left to do their own thing before the flood. And so part of you know, what God designed here after the flood is he begins to design some rules. And you see it more as you, you jump through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You begin to see some of those rules that God lays out. But here we begin to see kind of the f first formation of government and the importance of it. Now, I, I teach, uh, and I taught an ethics class this week. It was a doozy, four hours of ethics. I'm sure you would have loved it. But we're sitting and talking in this ethics class. And one of the things that, that everybody in the class kind of agreed upon was that a lot of our ethics are formed from our laws, right? Because the law says, I can do this or I can't do this, then our ethics kind of follow in place, right? Because I know there's consequences, that if I do this or I don't do that, that then maybe there are going to be consequences for my actions. And so many times our ethics and our way of life is formed around that. And so part of the reason God designs government and part of the reason it exists from here and then 
still today, right? Is because of that way. That before the flood, everybody kind of running around, doing their own thing. Now, we know there are plenty of corrupt governments, but government in place most of the time is better than no government at all as we see life before the flood. And so many of our forefathers believe that really right here is where we see for the first time God begin to establish government. Now, there are some things in here that you would pull out that government then reserves the right as we talk about human life, right? Before the flood, human life, if you look at uh, the story of Cain and Abel, right? We talked about the story of Cain and Abel. Well, after Cain kills Abel, what happens? Is his life taken? No, God marks him. At the end of Genesis chapter 4, Lamech basically admits, hey, I've killed somebody. I've murdered somebody. And we see nowhere within that passage that anything is done about it. People just kind of went on their way. Well, that now changes after the flood as government is set in place. So there's a new life and there's a new relationship with people. But we come back to the heart of it, to love, right? That love wins. That to love other people because they are made in the image of their creator. So there is new, a new creation, a new creation. The next thing we see is there is a new covenant. And this is where we get into the story of the rainbow. A new covenant is set. Listen to verses 12 and 13. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Literally what this means and what this says within here is that God has laid his bow up in the clouds. Okay, God has laid his bow up in the clouds and it's to be a sign. Now, we know a sign is to be a symbol. And as I told you earlier, anytime we see a covenant, that God makes a covenant with man, it's a symbol. It's a sign of his salvation. And the rainbow is no different. God has laid, literally he's laid his bow in the clouds. And this is a covenant sign, is a sign of salvation. It's, it's no different, really, as we take the bread and the juice. A covenant sign, right? There is a new covenant. His blood that was spilled out to cover our sins. His body that was broken. His death on the cross. The bread and the juice are a symbol. They are a sign. They point us to salvation found in Jesus Christ. And the rainbow. And when we look upon the rainbow, it's no different. We look upon it and we see salvation. The new covenant that God has with his people. Salvation. Now, there's four things I want to tell you about this. As we look upon the rainbow, four points to be made. The first thing we want to see is we understand that the rainbow, in the rainbow, we see the backdrop of God's salvation. Okay, what do I mean by that? Well, has anybody ever seen a rainbow on a day where there are no storms? Right? You don't see it, do you? When do we see the rainbow? Anybody know? Yeah, we see it on days like this morning. As you looked out this morning, anybody see that rainbow this morning and you looked out? Yep, a few people saw the rainbow. Well, what was happening? There was a storm. And then on the other side of the storm, the sun came, right? And the backdrop of the rainbow and the backdrop of God's salvation is the storm. 
that we must see that there will always be dark and stormy weather nearby when we see the rainbow. And the backdrop of God's salvation is no different. Never do we find God's grace unless something has gotten us to see our flaws, our weaknesses, our insignificance, and our sin. If you're like me, and pray to God that you are not like me, but in my weaknesses, in my mistakes, in my failures, you know, those are the times when God truly draws me to him. Have you ever experienced that? That in your heartache, in your pain, in your struggles, in your failures, it's the time when God shows you your great need for him. That's how he shows up, right? In the storm, we see the rainbow. He shows up. One of the first things we must realize is that there is a need for God. That we have failed, that we have made mistakes, that we have fallen short, that we are insignificant. And that's in the storm. The second thing we see is it shows the promise of God's grace. Now, if you look at the rainbow, the rainbow actually is a circle. I think you got to get up in the sky somewhere. I, I, science was not my greatest subject in school. But you have to, I think you got to be above it to see that it's actually a circle. But if we would look at it, and most of the time when you look at it, what do you see? You see that, right? It's a bow. It's kind of like Katniss Everdeen, right? You got that bow. That's, that's what it's to look like. That's the symbol of it. it. It's a bow. And so this bow, as it reveals to us, if you, if you look at it, and that's what you're going to see, what it says literally is, I have set my bow in the clouds. If you read your Bible in front of you, you're going to see the word rainbow, right? And obviously, when you translate it, I mean, that, that's what we're talking about. That's the image we're supposed to get, is that rainbow in the clouds. We're supposed to see it. But when it's literally translated, the Hebrew word here literally means war bow. The literal word is war bow. So what God is saying is he is laying up his war bow. Right? What a picture. We just come out of the flood. We just come out of the condemnation. God has flooded the earth. He's destroyed it. He's wiped it clean, and now what is he doing? What is his promise? What is his covenant to Noah, his descendants, his promise to us? I'm going to lay up my bow, my war bow. And this is the picture, right? If you look at it and you see a rainbow, imagine that thing being upside down. What if that rainbow, we saw the bottom half of the circle, wouldn't that be kind of a frightening image? God and his bow, right, ready to strike us down again. But where does it face? Charles Spurgeon had a message on this, and he talks about the significance of the bow. It's not pointing to us. It's not pointing down on earth to receive condemnation, but it's pointing where? It's pointing up. And the third thing we see is we see the astonishing secret of God's grace. See, if it was pointed down, it'd probably make us a little nervous, Spurgeon says we should know the reason God is able to lay his bow up. The reason God is willing to lay down his war bow. See, God hasn't changed. God is the same God before the flood that he is after. God is still a God of wrath and judgment. And the consequences of sin still have to be dealt with. But it's not pointing to us pointing up it's pointing where 
Isaiah 53, 5 says this, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. Who, who took those arrows? Who took that punishment? Who took the wrath and judgment of God upon himself? It was Jesus. That Jesus on the cross took that wrath and that judgment that you and I deserved. We deserved it. Those bows, those arrows should have been pointed at us. But Jesus took it upon himself. The punishment that was, brought us peace was upon him. Jesus got the arrows. And on the cross, the symbol of the rainbow. Right? When do we see the rainbow? We see the rainbow when storm and sun come together. Right? And the cross is no different. It's a symbol of the rainbow. Why? Because on the cross, we see the storm. We see the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the storms. But we also see his love and his grace. We see the sun shining through, don't we? On the cross, both, just like a rainbow, the storm and the sun come together. The cross is where we see his wrath poured out, but the cross is also where we see the love of God. John 3, 16, I shared earlier, for God so loved the world, he did what? He gave his son. And on the cross, the wrath and judgment of God and the grace and the love and the mercy of God all displayed the rainbow, a perfect image. Jesus went into that heart of the storm for us. He took that storm upon himself on the cross, and we got the rainbow. Isn't that awesome? He took the storm, we get the rainbow. The last thing we see in the rainbow is we see it as a thing of beauty. We talked about it already. You can sit there and you can marvel. We marvel at his creation. We marvel at the beauty found in a rainbow. And I would say this, there is beauty in it. And how we respond is the question then. The difference between a religious person and a righteous person. Well, a, a religious person, they come and they want to worship God for what they can get out of it. A righteous person comes and worships God for what he has done. In that message, uh, Spurgeon shared a story, and it was a story about a king, and there was a gardener, and then there was... Uh, another individual, and the, and the way the story goes is the gardener, <clears throat> because he loved the king, because he wanted to serve the king, when he was in his garden, he had grown a carrot. And this was the largest, most luscious carrot he had ever grown. And he was so excited about it, what he did is he took this, this, this carrot, this luscious and great carrot, and he took it to the king. He says, you know, I want to give this to you, because it's the greatest thing I've ever grown. And the king, appreciative of what he did, says, I'll tell you what, you know what, I want you to have this land all right, I want you to take this land right next to yours. You can have it. The king loved his response so much that he had given him this land next to him. And then the story goes, and this other individual heard about it, and this individual owned cattle, and he owned horses, and he owned land. And what he did is he took his great, greatest horse that he had. Right? He takes this great horse, and he takes him to the king, and he says, King, I want to give you this great horse. It's the greatest one that I have. I want you to have it. The king takes the horse, says thanks, and goes on his way. 
But wait, what, you know, what, I, I heard what you did for the gardener. Yeah, but the gardener, you know, he did his response. He did it because he loved me. He did it to worship me. He gave it as appreciation for me and who I am. You, you just brought it because you wanted something in return. And the same is true for us. And we have to ask ourselves the question, why are we here this morning? Why do we take the bread and the juice? Why do we serve? Why do we worship a holy and awesome God? Is it because we're looking for something? Nah, I, I want something in return. I, I, you know, I want some sort of favor. I want to be, be kept out of hell. I want whatever. Or do we come this morning? Do we come and worship? Do we come because of this great love for him and what he has done for us on the cross? This should be our response. This should be how we respond to such a great and awesome God who has given us his son. If you're here this morning and you want to ask yourself, you know, how do I, how do I, what, you know, what is salvation? How do I get it? We look to the rainbow. Look to the rainbow. What do we see in the rainbow, those four points? Number one, we see that darkness, that cloud. we got to admit our need. You must realize you are lost. You must realize you are broken. You must realize you are insignificant. It's the first step. Francis Schaeffer said this. He says, after a person knows he needs a Savior, it doesn't take many words to tell him there is a Savior. The first realization must be that we have a need. We have a need for God. We have a need for Jesus in our life. The second is to study the secret of the rainbow. What's the secret of the rainbow? It's Jesus on the cross. The wrath of God, the love of God, all right there. That, when you see the rainbow, is how we should respond, is knowing the secret. And then to live in the promise. Live in the promise that of this covenant, what did God say? I'm laying up my bow. I'm laying my bow in the clouds. No more condemnation. Why? Why? Because Jesus took it for us. That is the truth of the gospel, isn't it? That's the truth of the message of the cross, is that Jesus went there, and he, he took the judgment, and he took the wrath of God for us. And the last one is to live a life which is beautiful. Live a life of gratitude. Not because I'm trying to earn some favor of God, but because of what God has done for me, because of what Jesus has done. I would end with this. I would tell you that if you are in the middle of a storm right now, well, one, you're not alone. But that's okay, because that's where it begins, that in the storm, in the middle of the storm, is where we can find grace. And just like when we look to the cross, on the cross, you see so much wrath and you see so much judgment and you see so much hate. But on the cross, you see the love, you see the grace, and you see the mercy of God. And once you grasp the heart of Jesus, then you can know that in every storm, you can know there is grace. That the lightning and the storm was for him, but the rainbow was for us. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you. We thank you for the rainbow. And in the rainbow, this picture, this image, this symbol of your salvation. God, this morning, as we think about the rainbow, 
And now we think about the bread and the juice and we remember these covenants that you have made with us. That they are a picture, they are a sign of your salvation. And God, may we think and may we dwell on that this morning. We thank you for Jesus who took your wrath and your judgment upon himself so we could experience the love and the grace and the mercy of an almighty God. God, may we see the beauty in that. May our response this morning be that of praise and worship for who you are and what you have done. God, if we are here this morning and we don't know you, we don't have a relationship with your son, God, help us to look to the rainbow, the picture of the cross, where wrath and judgment meant love and grace and mercy. Help us this morning to surrender to you. God, we pray it and we ask it in the name of Jesus. one more song together and again I would encourage you uh, to please stick around and, and hear from, from Matt and Trista about what, what God is doing in their lives and, and, uh, and their future in Nepal and I would also encourage you this morning that if you find yourself in the midst of a storm and we see the rainbow right we look to the cross where the wrath of God and the love and the grace of God meet he took the storm and we get the rainbow. Isn't that awesome? Look to the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that on that cross, all that wrath and that judgment that should have been poured upon me, God, you laid down your bow. You laid your bow down in the clouds. And you put it upon him. God, thank you. Thank you that because of Jesus, and because I have put my hope and my faith and my trust in him, God, that I have received the love, that I've been redeemed, that I've been adopted, that I've been forgiven, that I am a new creation in Jesus Christ. Thank you for him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.